Our scripture reading today comes from the book of Matthew, chapter 15, verses 21 through 39, where the Holy Scriptures read. And Jesus went away from there and withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon. And behold, a Canaanite woman from that region came out and was crying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. But he did not answer her a word, and his disciples came and begged him, saying, Send her away, for she is crying out after us. He answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But she came and knelt before him, saying, Lord, help me. And he answered, It is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. She said, Yes, Lord. Yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Then Jesus answered her, O woman, your, great, your faith is great. Be it done to you as you desire. And her daughter was instantly healed. Jesus went out from there and walked beside the Sea of Galilee, and he went up onto the mountain and sat down there. And great crowds came to him, bringing with them the lame, the blind, the crippled, the mute, and many others. And they put them at his feet, and he healed them. So that the crowd then wondered when they saw the mute speaking, the crippled healthy, the lame walking, and the blind seen, and they glorified the God of Israel. Then Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat, and I am willing to send them away, and I am unwilling to send them away hungry, lest they faint on the way. And the disciples said to him, Where are we to get enough bread in such a desolate place to feed so great a crowd? And Jesus said to them, How many loaves do you have? They said, Seven, and a few small fish. And directing the crowd to sit down on the ground, he took the seven loaves and fish, and having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the crowds. And they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up seven baskets full of broken pieces left over. Those who ate were 4,000 men, besides the women and children. And after sending away the crowds, he got into a boat and went to the region of Magadan. Let's pray. Father, we just ask today, Lord, that you would help us again to understand your word. Help us to go beyond just the intellectual truths that are in this passage, but help them to penetrate our hearts. Father, we ask that you would allow our eyes to see with spiritual eyes, that we would understand these truths in our heads, and then they would go to our hearts, and then they would proceed in action for faith must lead to action and will. So, Father, we just thank you for your love, for your grace. Help me now to communicate clearly for your glory and your people's good. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Do you know who I am? This common phrase is often used by entitled people, entitled people, And it's used when that person thinks that they are entitled to something based upon their great and superior credentials. For example, uh, one tennis player's club saw a very famous actor, whose name will go unsaid here. Uh, They let him know that his credentials weren't enough, even though he, he thought that they were. See, he showed up and wanted in. They said, sorry, this is for tennis players only, in which he responded saying, Do you know who I am? 
And the staff then kindly let them know that they did know who he was, and they knew that he was not, in fact, a member of the tennis players only club. And so the actor then was rejected, and he was left with the realization that his credentials were not enough. In New York City, it's illegal to let your dog run without a leash. You can't do it, and if you try to, you're going to get in trouble. And so when one CNN anchor was asked by a park ranger to put their dog back on the leash, they responded in shock and said, do you know who I am? In which the park ranger kindly informed them that it didn't matter who they were since it did not permit them to let their dog run without a leash. And so they were left with their surprise of having found out their credentials weren't enough, and so they promptly went and leashed up their dog. After being pulled over by the police for going 57 miles an hour in a 40-mile-per-hour zone, one politician wasn't too happy that the police thought they had the right to pull him over. And so after threatening the cop's job, the cop's boss's job, and insulting them over and over, asking the cop, do you know who I am? The cop responded and said, I do know who you are and you're someone who's getting a ticket right now. And they handed them their speeding ticket, leaving them left with the, tru- with the truth that their credentials were not enough. One more? Well, it's the text, so. After believing they were the privileged people of God who were accepted members into God's kingdom simply because of their ethnicity, the people of Jesus' day ran into Jesus, who pointed out to them that they were, in fact, not the privileged people of God's kingdom. They were not the accepted members of his kingdom, simply on the basis of their ethnicity. In fact, as Jesus told them, not only were they not accepted on the basis of their claimed special credentials, they were guilty, they were unclean, they were sinners before a holy God, and when that kingdom would come, hopefully in about five minutes from now, they would be cast out. They would be the ones cast out into the utter darkness. And yet after hearing Christ's message and then examining the message with his credentials, which validated his message, seeing that he lived a perfect life, that he taught the perfect teaching of God, that he healed the sick, that he raised the dead, that he cast out demons... They responded by asking Jesus that same old question, which was, do you know who I am? And who were they in their minds? They were the sons of Abraham. They were the faithful followers of Moses who were obedient to God's law, all of it. And yet, Christ turned them away, leaving them left to wonder why their credentials might not be enough. And why were they not enough? Because they thought they were worthy, but the truth was they weren't. The truth was they were unworthy. They thought they were clean, but the truth was they were unclean. They thought they had been fed and nourished by the word of the Lord, but the truth was they were in fact starving from trying to dine upon the traditions of men, as we saw last week. And consequently, this resulted in them being completely rejected from the kingdom of God. So with this in mind, we find in our passage this morning that the credentials of the kingdom do not include the things that these Jewish people thought it included. Race doesn't matter. Ethnicity doesn't matter. Perfect obedience to God's law 
Doesn't matter. Lots of money. You don't have enough. Are you poor? Doesn't matter because you don't need money. It's not, you don't have, nobody has enough money in the world to pay to get into the kingdom. So it doesn't matter if you're rich or poor. So here's the question. How do we have the right credentials to get into the kingdom? What are those right credentials? Faith. Faith in what? Because you have to have faith in something. You can't just have faith. Faith in Christ. All right? But here's the thing, as our text is going to show us, this is a faith that manifests itself in three ways, and here they are. The kingdom's credentials require recognizing that you are, one, unworthy, two, you're unclean, and three, you're unfed. You're actually spiritually starving. If you are with us last Sunday, then you saw how the religious leaders tried to condemn Jesus and his disciples over something ridiculous. And what was that? That's right. It was hand-washing. They basically tried to argue that if you didn't wash your hands before you ate, your corrupted hands would touch the food, which would go to your mouth, which would go into your body, which would corrupt your whole body. That was their logic. And so basically, to not wash your hands was seen as disobedience to God's law even though God's law never told them to do that. Legalism is fun stuff, isn't it? And so in response to their legalism, Jesus completely obliterates their thinking and shows that sin isn't an external problem. Sin is an internal problem. It's a problem that comes out of the human heart, which, as the Bible tells us, is full of sin. It's dark. It's corrupted. It's twisted. It's full of evil. Now, just a reminder here, but if you remember, we kind of looked at this just for a second last week in Mark's account of that passage, uh, and what did we find there that Jesus said about these purity laws? It says there, it's a really remarkable and radical statement. It says, in this, he declared that all foods were clean. See, back then, all foods were not clean. You You couldn't eat certain things. You couldn't wear certain things. You had to do all of this ritualistic stuff, these ritualistic Uh, purity laws you had to follow in order to worship God, in order to come before God. And as we'll get to here in a minute, this radical statement that Jesus says when he declares all food cleans, it actually paves the way for what Matthew talks about in the rest of Matthew chapter 15. But for now, and we'll get to that in a second, just remember this. Jesus is breaking down the divide between the clean and the unclean. That's what he's doing. Everybody get that? What did I say? He's breaking down the divide between the clean and the unclean. So stick, keep that in your mind here. Okay, so what happens then in the rest of Matthew 15? What's going on here? All right, first, let's look at some background details before we answer that. Where is Jesus headed to? Tyre and Sidon. Okay, and what is interesting about these cities? Well, these are Gentile cities. They're about 40 miles north of Galilee. He's headed to their district. And so how this worked was when Jesus wanted a break from the crowds, when he wanted to get some rest, because, I mean, people were always flocking to him, wanting to hear his teaching, wanting to get his healing, he would want a break, and so he would use these Gentile regions as a respite from the massive Jewish crowds. And so here again, we find him withdrawing, as he often would, for some peace and quiet, yet he doesn't get peace and quiet, and why not? Because this super loud lady shows up and refuses to leave him alone. She's hollering after him. She won't let him be. And we see that in verses 22 through 29. Now answer me this. Who does Matthew say this lady was? Look at your text. Somebody answer for me. A Canaanite. That's right. A Canaanite what? 
a Canaanite. What's that? Well, it's not only a Gentile, but a Canaanite was actually the sworn enemy of Israel. That's what a Canaanite was. Remember back in the Old Testament, what did God command the Israelites to do when they went into the promised land? How were they supposed to interact with the Canaanites? Barter and trade with them? Set up boundaries? No, they were supposed to wipe them out. God had passed judgment upon those people, and they were to wipe them out completely. And yet, did Israel do that? No, they didn't. And because they disobeyed God in that, the Canaanites then became a thorn in their side that would continually pull them away from worshiping Yahweh God throughout Israel's history. And so not only was she a Gentile, she was a Canaanite. And get this, not only was she a Canaanite, but she was a woman, all right? And this is culturally something we don't understand because back then, women weren't allowed to just come up and approach a rabbi and just talk to him directly as an equal. That was not okay culturally. And yet, she does anyways. And so when we take all this together, the fact that she was a Gentile, the fact that she was a woman, the fact that she was a Canaanite, What she's doing here is actually extremely brazen. It's extremely bold. It's extremely courageous. It's remarkable that she approaches him at all, Jesus at all. So how does Jesus respond then to this woman's request? And what is her her request? Her request is to heal my daughter who's possessed by a demon. But how does Jesus respond to her request to heal her daughter? Look at verse 23. He doesn't talk to her at all. It says, but he did not answer her a word. You see that? Jesus straight up ignores her. Just, whatever, not listening. Just keeps on walking, like no big deal, just ignores her. And after all, though, if you look at her credentials, why shouldn't he? Culturally, she was a woman. She had no right or authority to approach a man in that context, in that cultural context. She was a Gentile, and she was a Canaanite who was the sworn enemy of the Israelites. What basis could she approach him on? She had none. As Matthew tells us, this lady is quite persistent. She refuses to give up. And what does she do? She keeps crying out with praise and flattery, calling Jesus Kyrios, which is Lord. And she also refers to him with the messianic title, Son of David. She recognized who Jesus was largely and that he was Israel's promised coming Messiah. And so in response to all this, how do the disciples view this situation? They're annoyed. They're irritated. Like, Jesus, would you just take care of, like, do something so she leaves us alone? It's like a buzzing fly. It's driving us nuts. Get rid of her. And what does Jesus tell his disciples? He says, no. Why? Because he came only for the lost sheep of Israel. Right? He didn't come for the Gentiles. He came for the Israelites. Which is quite interesting because has Jesus healed any Gentiles yet so far in Matthew? Yeah, he has. Has he interacted with Gentiles yet in the book of Matthew? Yes, he has. So why the attitude of indifference and neglect here with this woman? I'll tell you why, but not yet. I don't want to spoil it yet. So let's keep going with the narrative, and then I'll tell you why. Next, what happens? The woman comes before Jesus. She falls down before him, and she begins to beg. And the Greek word for this is called a present progressive. And that's not going to be on the test. You don't need to worry about it. But here's the point of what a present progressive tells us. It tells us she kept on begging. It wasn't just a one-and-done thing. She was pleading. She was begging. She was persistent. Nothing was going to stop her. 
No one was going to stop her, not even the disciples, not even Jesus himself. See, what was happening here was she was going mama bear for her child, and so she was absolutely determined to get the healing from the one person who she knew could definitely heal her child. And then, if you thought Jesus' response was rude so far, well, you ain't seen nothing yet. Look at verse 26. And he answered her, It's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. That's a verbal slap. <laughs> did Jesus really just call her a dog? Yes, he, he did, actually. Uh, and in that culture, to call somebody a dog was way more offensive even than it would be to call somebody a dog today. See, in our culture, let me ask you this. Who's man's best friend? Yes, allegedly, I guess. But not back in Jesus' day. See, back then, dogs... Largely speaking, yes, some were used as pets, but largely they were seen as being these wild creatures that would roam around, that would scavenge. They were dirty, flea-bitten, mangy. They were a symbol of something that was extremely unclean. And so back then, to call somebody a dog was a lot like calling somebody a pig today, but even more offensive. And so back then, the Jews, they would often insult Gentiles by calling them Gentile dogs, because of how clean they were since they didn't follow the Jewish uh, purity laws. And so in this verse, we find Jesus calling her a dog. What are we supposed to do with this? Well, again, I think the Greek helps us out a little bit here, kind of understanding the context and what's going on, because in the Greek, Jesus uses a word for dog that actually means puppies. He didn't use the offensive term that they would often use of just telling them they're roaming mangy mutts, but still... I mean, calling somebody a baby dog isn't all that much better than calling them a dog, right? So it's a little bit better, but not entirely better. So what's that spoiler I didn't want to tell you about before when it came to Jesus' attitude of indifference? Okay, well, here it is. Spoiler alert. Jesus is basically doing some play acting in this text. All right? He's going along with the cultural norms, acting a certain way in kind of this tongue-in-cheek way to, one, test this lady's faith, but two, to teach his disciples and make, them a point, make a point to them that they should never forget. And what is the main point he wants them to never forget? The unclean are no longer considered unclean. The unclean are considered now clean, right? That was the thing in Mark we just looked at a second ago. Remember the thing I told you to remember? We get back to it. That's it. That's the lesson he's trying to teach his disciples. And he's showing this with these three different examples, with this Gentile woman, with the Gentile healings, which come after this, and lastly, with the feeding of the 4,000. Okay, so with this in mind, I think what Jesus is doing here is he's making this puppy's comment to this woman, as I said before, in this sort of tongue-in-cheek way, and he's using this softer term for dog, which is puppies, basically puppies, instead of the harsher one, and he's doing this to test her faith. He's also trying to teach his disciples that point about cleanliness in the kingdom, which is the unclean are now what? They can be clean. And then in response, we see this woman. What does she become? She becomes the ultimate debate champion. She wins. Out of all the people who debate in human history, she beat Jesus, so she's the ultimate debate champion. You don't see this in Scripture, okay? And imagine the 12 disciples here. They're watching this, and she starts rattling off, you know, and Jesus is like, no, Can't feed the dogs. And, you know, there's argument. And what happens normally when people argue with Jesus? They walk away feeling stupid. 
right? Like you see that over and over with the religious leaders, with the Pharisees, with the scribes. But not here. What happens here? Jesus concedes the argument to her. He waves the white flag. He's like, okay, all right, what are you win? Good argument. And now, this isn't by accident. This is on purpose. He's playing a part, right? And look at her clever argument in verse 27. She said, yes, Lord, yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. And then Jesus' response in verse 28, O woman, great is your faith. Be done for you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. Why does Jesus tap out here? Well, one, that's what he was going for anyways. Uh, But think back to Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are the what? The meek, the humble, for they will inherit the earth. They will inherit the kingdom. And if anyone qualifies as being meek and humble, she wins the prize, right? Like Jesus is insulting her. He's ignoring her. He's treating her like a second-class citizen. He's calling her not very nice terms, even though it is soft a little bit. He's calling her a dog. And yet, how does she respond? She doesn't get all angry. She accepts Jesus' diagnosis. She doesn't look at him and say, I don't have to take this from you. Where do you get off telling me this, 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 this? She doesn't stand up for her rights. She just looks at him and she's like, true, but. She accepts his diagnosis. All of Jesus' diagnosis. And yet, then what does she do after accepting Jesus' diagnosis? She appeals to his healing power anyways. And when you understand all that's going on here, and we don't have time to unpack it fully, but you will understand why Jesus says, wow, great is your faith. Because great was her faith. And why was her faith so great? Because after telling Jesus that she's unworthy, sorry, after Jesus tells her that she's unworthy of being at the table, she doesn't fight it. After Jesus tells her that she's unworthy of the bread of the kingdom since she's a dog, she agrees. After Jesus tells her all of this, she doesn't stand up for her rights. She doesn't get upset and angry with Jesus for his prejudiced comments. She accepts his diagnosis and she's not offended by him, which is important because remember what Matthew said back in Matthew eleven six. 6? Here's what he said. Blessed is the one who is not offended by me. That's how you receive the blessings of the kingdom. You see Christ's teachings. You see his diagnosis. And even if you don't like it, you say, hmm, he's the one who rose from the dead. I'm going to go with his diagnosis, not mine. All right? We'll go with that guy's idea. And so blessed is this woman then for not being offended. Because then what happens? Christ heals her daughter instantly. Instantly. He doesn't have to go there. He doesn't do all the mumbo-jumbo, all the voodoo, nothing. He just, it's done. And why? Because she recognized that she was unworthy, and she also then, out of that recognition, recognized the second thing, which is that she was unclean, which leads us to our second point here. In verse 22, what does this woman ask Jesus to do? Well, we saw already, she asked him to heal her daughter, who's demon-possessed, but what was the, the basis for that request? She asked him to have what? Mercy. Have mercy, Lord. And why does she need mercy? Because she knows that what she's asking for is something she doesn't deserve. She has no right to say, give this to me. It's mine. No, she doesn't. She knows she doesn't deserve it. And she knows this because she realizes she's unclean. And yet, here's the thing that's so remarkable. 
it's that acknowledgement that actually brings Christ's healing into her life. That acknowledgement that she's unworthy and that she's unclean is what is necessary for the healing to be received. When it comes to Christ's diagnosis, there's three possible responses that we can have to this. All right, here's the three responses. I want to talk about this for just a second. First, we can respond to this offensive, I mean, because here's the reality. Does anybody naturally like to be told that you're a vile worm before God, that you're a sinner who is destined to hell apart from the saving grace of Jesus? Who likes that message? Nobody likes that message. It's offensive to us. We don't want to hear it. And so we come up with all these excuses, all these justifications to say, okay, well, maybe people like Hitler, but I'm actually, I'm actually not too bad. Okay, That's the way we think. So the first response is pride. We respond, we respond to Christ's severe diagnosis of our sinful condition with pride. And then what do we do? We appeal to our merit, the things we've done, our credentials, our report card, whatever, our resume. That's what the Pharisees did. But as Christ tells us, none of us, no, not one, can merit a seat at the feast, a seat at the table. Nobody does. Why? We're all unworthy. And so if we're going to get any of the bread of heaven at all, which is a symbol for blessing, for eternal blessing that goes on forever and ever and ever, it comes by mercy, not merit. It comes by mercy, not merit. Now, the second way that we can respond to Christ's diagnosis is, uh, we'll call this Eorism. all right? Defeat. Oh, I'm just terrible. Nothing I do is any good. You know, that kind of thing. All right? And what we do here is we beat ourselves up for our mistakes, for our past sins, for our failures, and we tell ourselves that we are too unworthy to merit God's blessings, which is partly true. Right? But then what we do, instead of appealing to his mercy as the Canaanite woman did, we go on then to be self-absorbed and self-loathing, thinking that our merit, hear me when I say this, we think that our merit, our sin, is more powerful than Christ's mercy. That's what's going on there. Right? With the first one with pride, you're looking to your merit in a positive way. You're like, oh, I don't need God's mercy. Look at this. In the second way, you're like, I'm not worthy of God's mercy. It's not powerful enough. Look at all this. In both situations, you're looking to yourself. In both situations, you're looking inward to find your value, to find your self-worth. But the fact is, both of those are not to see Christ's diagnosis and to respond with faith. And faith is what is necessary for God's mercy to be enacted in our lives. When it comes to self-loathing, and feeling unworthy of God's mercy, the 19th century Scottish pastor, Robert Murray McChaney, said this, For every look at yourself, take ten looks at Christ. I'm going to say that again. He said this, For every look at yourself, take ten looks at Christ. And why? Because as Martin Luther once famously said, When I look at myself, I don't see how I can be saved. But when I look at Christ... I don't see how I can't be. Church, even the vilest of sinners doesn't come close to putting a dent in the powerful mercy of God. Doesn't put a dent in it. Which is why we often sing around here, what love can remember, no wrongs we have done, omniscient, all-knowing, he counts not their sum. Thrown into a sea without bottom or shore, our sins, they are many, his mercy is more. 
And why, church, is his mercy more? Because, as that song goes on to sing, his blood was the payment, his life was the cost. That was the cost of mercy. See, on the cross, Christ did not receive mercy. He received the vengeance and the justice and the wrath of God that you and I deserve so we might receive the mercy of God. After living the life you and I could never live, he was crushed for our iniquities. On the cross, Christ, who was worthy, bore our unworthiness. On the cross, Christ, who was clean, became unclean for our sins. He bore our sins. And why? He did all of this so that the unfed might become the fed, which leads us to our final point. In verses 32 through 39, we read a passage that gives us some major deja vu here. Uh, it's very familiar to what we just looked at a few weeks ago. In fact, some liberal theologians, all right, not political liberal, theological liberal, totally different things, uh, they try to argue that Matthew just has his facts mixed up here. Right? Oh, he just forgot. He wrote down 4,000 instead of 5,000. He wrote down, he got the fish wrong, the number of bread. He just got things mixed up. Baskets, got him a little bit confused. We've all done that, right? No big deal. We get the numbers wrong. That's how they approach this. Um, but that's not the case. There's too many distinct differences. And Matthew is telling us this similar miracle, miraculous story of the feeding of the 4,000 for an important purpose. See, Jesus feed, fed the 5,000 people. Why? To show them that God's eschatological, God's future coming kingdom would provide the bread from heaven for them for eternity. And now here, with the 4,000, what is Jesus teaching? Well, who is this crowd? Are they Jewish? No. They're largely Gentile. And so what Jesus is teaching then is that God's feeding the bread from heaven, which comes down to nourish our souls, to give us new eternal life... It's not just for the Jews. It's for the entire world. It's for all the nations. And so that's why there's two feedings. Matthew 15, 33, here's what the disciples say. Where are we going to get enough bread in such a desolate place to feed so great a crowd? Does that question sound familiar at all? It's the same question they asked back with the feeding of the 5,000. So why are they asking this question again? It's because they don't know the answer. They haven't figured it out yet. And that's another reason why there's two feedings here. It's to teach the disciples an important truth that they failed the first time around. And So, so here's the thing. If you're reading your Bible through and you read this verse, you're probably going to read this and you're going to be like, are you guys serious? Are you numbskulls really this dense? You can't figure this out? Like, where are you going to get bread from heaven? How about the same place you got it last time, geniuses? Right? That's how you're going to think. That's how I think. Okay. But here's the thing. I don't think it's just a situation here of the disciples being dense. I think there's actually a lot more going on here, all right? I think there's several things going on here. So let's just look at a couple of these. One, I think they asked this question again because, one, they were with Jesus all the time, and it wasn't a common miracle for Jesus just to, you know, start handing out bread from one tiny little piece. They had to get food like the rest of y'all do, like we all do, all right? Not miraculously. Secondly, and this is really important, in John's account of the feeding of the 5,000, what happens after Jesus feeds the crowd? He rebukes them. He says, you only want bread to fill your stomachs. You don't want the bread from heaven. You are just here to, to satisfy your appetites. And so what's likely going on here is the disciples see that, and they're like, well, we don't want to get rebuked by Jesus. Right? Like, I mean, 
those guys all got in trouble for that. Maybe, maybe we're just not supposed to ask for bread anymore. Okay, check, don't ask for bread. All right? That's likely a possibility, I think, what's going on. And third, and this one's really important. When Jesus fed the 5,000, as we just mentioned a second ago, it was a preview of the great messianic banquet, which in their minds was not going to have Gentiles, or at least not very many. It wasn't for the Gentiles. It was just for the Jewish people. All right, And this fits actually with Jesus' interactions with the Canaanite woman. He's like, I'm sorry, the bread is for the children, not for the puppies. It's not for you, Gentiles. It's for God's children, which is the Israelites, is how they viewed it at that time. Fourth, and this one I think we probably can relate to, the disciples, like most of us, struggle with unbelief. How many times has God provided for us in a way that we absolutely never expected? Where not only did we not expect it, but when he came through and provided for us, we look back and we're just like, wow. And we worship, right? Like this is how the crowd responds to Jesus. This is how people often respond to Jesus' miraculous provision. We do the same thing, don't we? And yet then what happens? Once God provides for that difficult situation that we're in, what happens shortly later Later on? Another difficult situation comes up, and what do we do? Where, where are we going to get bread from? Same thing, right? It's the same question. We ask the same thing. We start to wonder how we'll get more bread. And I hate to break it to you. Okay, well, I don't. I like to break it to you. But here's the thing. We're all disciples. We are the disciples, the Old Testament, all these numbskulls in there. That's us. Sorry, not sorry. It's us, okay? And so think about this. Worry, anxiety, fear, stress. What is all of this? Trying to figure out how we'll get more bread. That's what it is. It's the disciples later on down the road. How are we getting more bread? I know God provided last time, but I don't think he's going to do it again. That's what it is. How often, church, do we forget that Christ is our provision who will by no means leave us to destruction. Not any real kind of destruction, not any destruction that could ever actually truly destroy us, not fully and not finally. And why not? Because on the cross, Christ defeated the only thing that could ever actually truly destroy us. He defeated the only threat that we actually faced, the only real threat. On the cross, Christ faced our only true enemy, and he defeated that enemy once and for good. And so think about this. If Christ was willing to go that far for us, do you think this situation over here is like too great for him all suddenly? Absolutely not. He went to the cross for us. Romans 8.28 says, All things work together for good for those who love God, and that even includes a rumbly tumbly. That even includes that difficult situation that you are facing. The reason for the two miraculous feedings then is to show us a remarkable truth. It's to show us that in Christ, bread from heaven has come. And through that bread, all of the nations of the earth will be blessed. It shows us that in Christ, we find the fulfillment of Genesis 12, which prophesied to us that one day, through the descendants of Abraham, all of the earth would receive the blessing of Abraham and his descendants. And that would come by faith. It comes by grace through faith in Jesus Christ who miraculously feeds all the nations of the world when they come to him and appeal to his mercy and simply ask, give me bread from heaven. So here's a question. 
have you received that bread from heaven? The living bread, which comes to us without cost. And here's the thing about that bread that came to us without cost. It came without cost to us, but it came, as we know, with great cost to the one who provides it. See, all of us were dogs who were unworthy of sitting at Zion's table. And yet, Christ became an unclean dog so that we unworthy unclean dogs, unfed dogs, might become the children of God who are then invited to sit and feed at his table. That's what this is showing us. That's exactly what this is showing us. And this invitation to sit at his table, it goes out not just to those who have certain uh, you know, achievements in their life, who have the right ethnicity, all those sorts of things, not people who think they have the right credentials. It goes out to one credential alone, and it's those who come to Jesus by his mercy, by grace, through faith, and trust in his name and say, Lord, feed me the bread from heaven. All of us are invited to come. All of us are invited to dine. It doesn't matter what you've done, right? Don't fall into that second camp where you're self-loathing and you're thinking that your merits are too great, they're too powerful, that even the, God's mercy can't touch it. It can. The feast is coming. The table is set. The invitations have been given. And so praise God, they are not given only to those with the right national, moral, or religious credentials, but those who have come to realize their only credentials are Christ crucified. And those credentials alone allow us to eat the bread of heaven with our eternal king. And this is another remarkable thing about it. Not just the crumbs as dogs beneath his table, but all of the bread that we could ever want as we sit at the table of the king, as his children, as his loved and forever blessed children. Are you a child of God? Why not today? Father, we thank you for this text. Lord, we just ask that we would live by this. And Father, I just pray that you would help kill our own prejudices. Help us to see that we're not better than anyone else, that we have no reason to boast over anyone else. And Father, help us to remember that as we serve you faithfully, as we live following you, that you are our provision, that you've promised to never leave us nor forsake us. And so even if we don't have food, we know that our ultimate fate is to dine with you in the kingdom of heaven, in that great feast which is coming soon. So we pray, come quickly, Lord Jesus. We pray that we might be found faithful, that we might smile when we see your face and not shrink back as we've lived for the things of this world instead of the, the eternal things from the world to come. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand with us as we sing our closing song, Let the Nations Be Glad.